Good afternoon. I'm Shelby Herbert, and welcome to Midday Magazine for Friday, January 27th, 2023. The U.S. Transportation Department announced this week that it's approved grants totaling $285 million to upgrade and modernize Alaska's ferry system. The money comes mostly from programs Senator Lisa Murkowski added to last year's bipartisan infrastructure bill. But the award to Alaska is larger than even she expected. I'm so happy. I'm just so happy. And as I mentioned, let's not let's not mess this up. Right. The concern about messing it up because the federal money will require the state to put up matching funds totaling more than a hundred million and then support the new ferries and facilities with operating and maintenance fund. The state transportation department applied for the grants and asserted that it is committed to providing the match, but Governor Mike Dunleavy did not show the ferry system much love in his first term. He cut the Alaska Marine Highway System's budget, sold the state's two fast ferries for a fraction of their cost, and vetoed $17 million to retrofit the Alaska-class ferries. He also idled and then sold the Malaspina rather than pay millions of dollars for repairs. Murkowski says she's spoken to the governor and and to the state finance co-chair, Bert Stedman, about the need to spend state dollars to get the federal grants. It's going to take some money, but it's worth the investment. Alaska was awarded about 75 percent of the federal money available for ferries this year. It is the first of five funding years in the infrastructure law. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg says... That reflects the need in coastal areas of Alaska that aren't connected by roads. For so many communities, including the 35 communities along the Alaska Marine Highway, where everything is spaced further apart, where transportation is very expensive, waterways are critical. The money was awarded in six grants. One would replace the aging Tustumina with a diesel-electric hybrid, Another would modernize the Columbia, Kennecott, Matanuska, and Teslina ferries. The grants would also upgrade docks in Juneau and Prince William Sound. Late Thursday afternoon, the governor's deputy press secretary said by email that Dunleavy's office will evaluate all options for the state match. Money already appropriated could be used for some of the match, she said. The Alaska Wildlife Alliance submitted nine proposals aimed at protecting wolves for the Board of Game meeting this month. They all failed. The Alliance is one of the groups petitioning to list the wolves on the Prince of Wales Island as an endangered species. Reagan Miller has more from Ketchikan. Many of the wolf-related proposals on the Board of Game's agenda last week were submitted by the Alaska Wildlife Alliance. That's an environmental group that's had a big hand in trying to add more protections for wolves on Prince of Wales Island. Carol Damberg is the president of the alliance. She says her organization was trying to help navigate what's been a controversial issue, wolf numbers on Prince of Wales. Our goal was that we felt um, that it was an opportunity to provide the state and um, the folks that are on Prince of Wales some tools 
um, to be more precautionary in their management of wolves to make sure that they stay off the endangered species list. Still, she was hopeful the board would see the merit of a few of the proposals. One of the proposals asked to shorten the length of time that trappers have to report their kill from seven days to 48 hours. The Alaska Department of Fish and Game backed that proposal, saying it would help keep accurate and timely data available for biologists. That didn't, that didn't work for, for the board, and it didn't work for the, the folks that were testifying and saying that that was a, a tough burden to put on them um, in terms of safety, as well as the communications out there are sketchy. Danberg also saw promise in a proposal that aimed to increase the target number of wolves on the island. There are ongoing studies into the topic, and she thought that might be a good reason for the proposal. But um, that was our opportunity to say, well, in the interim, maybe you should raise it up a little bit um, to be precautionary um, in your management until you really know the answers that you um, hope to get in your analysis. But several board members said they felt the state was handling the situation well, despite past criticism. That included board member Lynn Kia. By and large, I think they've got a pretty good handle on this population. And, uh, and like we said, it's, everything we've got going right now is sustainable. Members of the public, as well as regional advisory committee members, referenced the proposals throughout two days of public comment. Bob Yonke is a member of the Ketchikan Advisory Committee. His organization opposed every proposal from the Alaska Wildlife Alliance. He said he felt like the proposal showed the organization's, quote, true colors. For one, they are against trapping and hunting of wolves in Southeast. And number two, they have no knowledge of history or what or where wolves come from here. But in her testimony to the Board of Game, Danberg said it's the opposite. Although some folks try to tag us as anti-hunting and anti-trapping organization, we are not that at all. Um, many of our members, including myself, enjoy hunting, fishing, hiking, skiing, and all those fun things that happen in Alaska. The board did support a wolf-related proposal brought forward by Ketchikan's Fish and Game Advisory Committee. The proposal asked to lengthen the hunting season for wolves. It will now start on September 1st, matching the federal season guidelines. Lengthening the season allows more chances to hunt wolves while already in the field, aside from the regular trapping season. The proposal was supported by the advisory committees in Craig and Klawak, but opposed by the East Prince of Wales group. That's a big reason why Fairbanks-based member Al Burnett was in support. Generally, I'd want to give that extra portion to the trapping, or to the trapping season portion for the trappers to have. Um, but again, I count, you know, four or five ACs that are, are supporting this, and countless, uh, or many other uh, individuals, and only one AC uh opposed to this so i'm gonna i'm gonna lean towards the acs and and rack on this one the state's department of fish and game was neutral on the proposal explaining that only around six percent of wolves are hunted before trapping season begins so they weren't expecting a huge jump in harvest danberg says in the end she was disappointed but not surprised all of the alliance proposals failed at the meeting that's you know that's the way that process works i guess it's it's okay um they feel like they are comfortable with what the state's doing and um anything that we proposed was not um something they thought was necessary the board of game met in ketchikan friday through monday and discussed more than 50 proposals reporting in ketchikan i'm reagan miller a local aid organization will count petersburg's homeless population on january 31st 
It's part of a left, an effort led by the HUD, the United States Department of Housing and Urban Development, to document the nation's homelessness problem, population on a single evening. It's called a point in time count. Rachel Cassandra talked with the president of Humanity in Progress, Ashley Kawashima. Her group has led the count for the last six years. The point in time count itself is a nationwide survey that occurs on one evening once a year, and it's the same night for every state. So here in our community, because we don't have a shelter or soup kitchen, um, we actually host an event, which is called the Project Connect Resource Fair, which is an opportunity for people experiencing housing insecurity to come together and be able to get connected with resources, to be able to get clothing and food. And then at that event is when we do the point in time count survey, which asks them where they slept the night before, how many months in the past year have they experienced homelessness. We do some demographic things on like domestic violence, things like that. All of that data then gets recorded into the state database, which is shared nationwide. So what happens to those numbers? It will help us to become eligible for grant funding. A lot of, especially the state grants or federal grants that you would apply for, they want specific measurable data on what's going on in your community. And then in addition to that, community in progress, for example, we use that data just as like education points. I think a really important thing to remember, though, is that this isn't a whole picture of what's going on. This is just a number of the people on that one evening that we were able to get to this one event once a year. We had three participants at our first event. We went up to, I think, 40-something the second year, 60, 80. Last year, we had over 100 participants. We're shooting for probably 150 for this year. We have a lot of really meaningful conversations with participants, and we really have seen just like what the lack in resources were or where were the barriers to getting access to resources and housing. And so of those 150 participants, are you imagining most of those folks are struggling with housing insecurity? There's two separate numbers. So we collect the number of people that are coming to the event that are experiencing housing insecurity. We're anticipating about 150 people. And then separate from that is we take the survey data, which will give us the exact number of people that are currently experiencing homelessness. And so that number also has increased over time. Last year, we had about 30 that identified as directly experiencing homelessness the night before. So that's the question that we're asking. Within that number of, say, 150, though, we also have data points on over the past six months, have you experienced homelessness? And so we're able to also get some meaningful information from, you know, maybe somebody is couch surfing right now. So right now they're not identifying as experiencing homelessness. But a couple of weeks ago, that wasn't the case. Can you talk a little about the barriers and struggles that you see in Petersburg specifically and in Southeast that are different from other parts of the country? I think first you have to talk about what's the same, because I think... A misunderstanding in our community is oftentimes that things that are happening out in the world aren't happening here in our community, when in fact they are, even if it's on a smaller scale. One of the biggest challenges that I see just from being in a small place, we have a lot of people who have 
Section 8 vouchers, for example. Section 8 housing is a program that landlords have their locations be approved for Section 8 rentals. And then people who apply for the Section 8 voucher through the state can then get funding to help supplement their rent. And then that rent money goes straight to the landlords. But with such limited Section 8 housing, you can have a voucher and you can have the state have determined that they can help support your rent. However, if there's nowhere for you to go, then you're still going to be experiencing homelessness. I've known participants that have waited for even a couple of years trying to get in. For those experiencing housing insecurity, the event will have free kids and adults clothing, camping supplies and luggage, hygiene and cleaning products, a meal and chances to connect with Petersburg organization. The resource fair is on January 31st. That's Tuesday from 2 to 6. It will be at the John Hansen Senior Community Hall at First and Fram Streets. The last hour is open to the general public, including giveaways. For KFSK, I'm Shelby Herbert. Coming up, local and marine weather, 